podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 20th of December. Hope you're all well. We have weather today that is only fit for ducks, not even for swans, just ducks. Right. Uh, it is Wednesday. It is nostalgia day. We're going to go straight into that. We are going to take a request from a few weeks back from Mikhail Campbell, and we're going to look at Brazil and the national team. Now, Mikhail did ask about the golden era, but I don't really know how you would define the golden era other than to say the World Cups in 58 and 62, which are a bit before my wheelhouse of time. So what I thought we'd do is we'd take a look at just the national team in general from their history in the World Cups, their history in Copa Americas, and then go through some of my favorite Brazilian players because it's my podcast, so that's what I'm going to do. So we're going to start with the 1930. World Cup. 
which took place in Uruguay, Brazil, were one of the entrants. And in their group stage, they were placed with Yugoslavia and Bolivia. They lost to Yugoslavia in the first ever World Cup game, but then they beat Bolivia. They finished second in the group and they were eliminated. And that was the end of their first World Cup adventure. The 1934 World Cup then obviously took place in Italy. And in this competition, was played as a knockout and Brazil lost to Spain in their first and only game at that World Cup, 3-1. I do like the idea of it just being a straight knockout competition without the group stages. And I wonder if maybe that would be more interesting than what we have right now. Maybe, maybe not. But that's quite cool from 1934. Obviously, Italy went on and won the World Cup Second World Cup, second time, the host nation had reigned supreme. The third World Cup then took place in France. That was in 1938. The Italians would once again win the competition. Again, it's a 16-team straight knockout. And this time, Brazil do well. They beat Poland 6-5 after extra time. Then they beat the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, as they were at the time, in a replay. Game ends 1-1. They have a replay. It ends 2-1 to Brazil. How interesting to have a replay rather than just going straight on towards the uh, the next round or straight on to extra time and penalties. I think a replay is quite cool. Only a two-day gap for the players there. And that replay seemed to take it out of the Brazilians. They lost 2-1 to Italy in the semi-final, and Italy would go on to beat Hungary in the final, in 1942 and 46, there was no World Cup because of the war. So we move on then to 1950. Brazil hosts the World Cup for the first time. And Brazil get to their first ever World Cup final. So the group stage, or we're into a group stage situation. We have 16 teams again. Four groups of four. Brazil are placed in with Yugoslavia like they were in 1930. This time Switzerland and Mexico were in the group. So they beat Mexico 4-0. Then they draw 2-2 with Switzerland. The Swiss were very strong back then. And then they beat Yugoslavia 2-0 to top their group. Into the knockout phase. And they take on Sweden in what is classed as a final round. Oh, I'm wrong. There was no real World Cup final in this competition. There kind of was, there kind of wasn't. I've never looked at this properly before. So each team played three games. Brazil beat Sweden 7-1. Uruguay drew 2-2 with Spain. Then Brazil beat Spain 6-1. Uruguay beat Sweden 3-2. So going into the final game, Brazil have four points, Sweden or Uruguay have three. So the match between them is to decide the World Cup. But it, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't planned that way, that the World Cup final of 1950 would be decided on the last game. 
because had, for example, Sweden managed to beat Uruguay, they would have gone into the final game against Spain on two points. Spain would have had one. Uruguay would have had one. And Sweden, with a win over Spain, potentially could have put themselves in a position to win it, even with Brazil's superior goal difference. Brazil would have had to lose heavily to Uruguay, obviously, for Sweden to win it. But the final would have been non-existent. So instead, what we get is we get Uruguay and Brazil in a game that is to decide the winner of the competition. Brazil go 1-0 up, and then Uruguay score twice in the second half to claim victory and win the competition by one point, despite Brazil's massive goal difference from their hammerings of Sweden and Spain. They lose that game to Uruguay, and therefore... Uruguay are world champions. Hmm. On to 1954. This World Cup took place in Switzerland, and this is one of the more famous World Cups because it's that Hungarian team being so strong and so much better than everybody else and expected to breeze through. Now, in their group stage, Brazil took on Yugoslavia, France, and Mexico. So Yugoslavia and Mexico again. They hammered Mexico 5-0, and they drew 1-1 with Yugoslavia. They did not play France the way the competition was drawn. You only played two games. Uh, But they topped the group, and they go through. In the knockout stage, they took on Hungary, and they got beaten 4-2. Um, that Hungarian team, that game is famous. The Battle of Bern, that game is infamous um, for just the violence that was involved. But that Hungarian team were incredible. They would go on and beat Uruguay, and then they would lose to West Germany in a huge upset despite having gone 2-0 up. Puskas was playing basically on one leg and the Germans managed to overcome them in a huge surprise because that that Hungarian team is... People say it's the Brazil team. I think I might have even said it once or twice that that Brazil 82 team is the best team not to win the World Cup, but it's not. It's that Hungarian team. And I don't think it's particularly close. In 1958, then, we finally get Brazil's first World Cup triumph. And... They'd been obviously knocking on the door. They'd been at every World Cup. They were growing in popularity because of the style of play and the talent of the players involved. And finally, they get over the hump in 1958. The World Cup takes place in Sweden. In the group stage, Brazil are drawn to play in Group D with the Soviet Union, England and Austria. They beat Austria 3-0. They draw with England 0-0, and then they beat the Soviet Union 2-0. Brazil advance as group winners. Soviets go through, having beaten England in a playoff after they finished level on points and goals. The playoff was the only way to decide it, so the Soviets go through. Uh, England didn't win a game at that World Cup, though. They drew all three of their group stage games. Uh, Into the knockout round, and Brazil take on Wales. They beat them 1-0. Pele gets the only goal of the game. 
In the semi-finals, they took on France. They beat them 5-2. Pelé gets a hat-trick. Auguste Fontaine also on the score sheet for France in that game. And then in the final, they take on Sweden, who are, I would say, the upstarts. And it was an unexpected run to the final for them. But they were the host nation, so you know they had the, the home support. But Brazil get the job done and beat them 5-2 in the final. So let's have a look at that Brazilian squad that went to that World Cup. And there's just names that stand out, legendary names. You've got Jalma Santos, one of the greatest fullbacks of all time. Probably the, the atypical Brazilian right-back in that he wasn't a marauding fullback. He was more defensive-minded, very good on the ball, but more defensive-minded. Um, along with Franz Beckenbauer and Philippe Lam, he's one of only three players to be included in the FIFA World Cup All-Star teams, 58, 54, 58, and 62. Um, one of the, the all-time great right-backs. Um, on the other side, you had Nilton Santos, who was very Brazilian in his in the way he played. He kind of, I suppose, he was the one that really set aside the idea that fullbacks should just defend and he would maraud forward. And he paved the way for many others that followed, Leonardo, Branca, Roberto Carlos, Marcelo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously it spread beyond Brazil and more and more countries started to incorporate attacking fullbacks. But he was the first of them. Um not related to Jalma Santos, but did play in three World Cups. And uh, we'll get to the, the second one that he won. Mauro Zagallo, who most people remember as a manager, but he was also an outstanding forward in his career. And he played a key role in this World Cup. Played as a winger, creative, high energy, good defensively, needed to be good defensively with Santos overlapping him all the time. But obviously, like I said, most people remember him as a manager winning the World Cup with Brazil in 1994 as coordinator. He'd already won a World Cup as a manager in 1970, but it was his brainchild was that 1994 team. Um, he's won four World Cups. He, 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 he has won. He did win four World Cups. Um, and he's one of the few remaining people from that team who's still alive. But you look at his career with Flamengo, with Botafogo, with the Brazilian national team, and he's just a winner. And as a manager, he was just a winner. Didn't know how to do anything else. Moving on, we have the two big names in that squad, Pele and Garincha. And... I suppose Pele widely seen as the greatest or one of the greatest players of all time. But for years and years and years from people who saw both, there has been this debate among Brazilian football fans over whether or not Pele is even the best Brazilian player of all time because of Grincha, because of the genius of that player 
arguably the greatest dribbler of all time. And if you see footage of him playing, it just, it's so strange because he had that shorter leg and he ran in such a strange way. He had weird balance and it threw defenders off. And obviously he'd gotten used to it, but defenders found it very hard to cope with him in 1v1 situations. He was also very inventive and creative and obviously his his post-career life was not good. But as a player, he has very few that can match him. And the same is true of Pele, of course. Now, he obviously inflated his own goal numbers uh, to a ridiculous extent, but there's no doubting he is one of the best to ever play the game. Spent most of his career with Santos only went to New York Cosmos late in his career. But the thing is, he captured the the world, the imagination of the world. Everybody knew who Pele was. Whether they knew football or not, they knew who Pele was. And he was arguably the first real superstar that the game had, first global superstar that everybody knew. And when you look back at him playing with Santos and with the national team, the amount of money he was making for those organizations through the tours that they would go on because people would want to see Pele and Santos would tour all over, make a fortune. But it was purely so people could see him play because otherwise they were only going to see him play at the World Cup, which, you know, it's every four years. You don't get to play in a handful. Um, so that's Brazil's first win in 1958 moving on to 1962 when Brazil would go back to back and become the first nation to win back to back awards Uh, this World Cup would take place in Chile in the group stage Brazil would have Czechoslovakia Mexico they just seemed to want to bully Mexico at World Cups and Spain. They beat Mexico 2-0. They drew with the Czechs, and then they beat the Spanish 2-1. They would get into the knockout phase. They would take on England and beat them 3-1. Grinchy got two in that game. Then they would face the host Chile in the semifinal. They would win 4-2. Again, Grinchy with two. And then they would win the final 3-1 over the Czechs. Now, that squad, again, it's a lot of the same names. You've got John Santos, you've got Nilton Santos, you've got Gorincha, you've got LA, uh, you've got Mauro Zagallo. Uh, you've also got the original Coutinho, who was only 18 in that World Cup, um, only died a few years ago. He was another fantastic attacking player, played with Pele for Santos and scored goals for fun, but didn't have the same level of international career for some strange reason. Only played 15 times, scored six goals, but did win the World Cup. But him and Pele for Brazil was the pairing. And it's strange that they didn't use that more at international level. We'll move on to 1966, obviously, famous now because that's the World Cup that England won in England. Uh, In the group stage, Brazil were in Group 3 and had their worst performance, really, at the World Cup. Um, 
We beat Bulgaria 2-0, then lost to Hungary 3-1, and then lost to Portugal 3-1. Now, it is Eusebio's Portugal, so it is still, it was a great team, largely built of that great Benfica team of the 60s, but they'll have been very disappointed to go out. But they bounced back in 1970. Brazil would win their third World Cup. This one took place in Mexico. In the group stage, Brazil were in Group 3 and they got their revenge on England, you know, who'd stolen their World Cup crown as far as they were concerned. They would beat Czechoslovakia 4-1 in their first game. They'd beat them 1-0 in beat England 1-0 in the second game and they would beat Romania 3-2 in their final game. They advanced to the knockout stage. England followed them through in second place. In the quarterfinals, they beat Peru 4-2. Then they beat Uruguay 3-1 in the semis. And then they beat, uh, beat the Italians 4-1 in a very one-sided final. Now, let's look at this Brazilian squad. So you've got the legendary Carlos Alberto now playing at right back. Brazil have always just had great right backs, haven't they? Like it is just a procession of greatness in that position because of how they use that position, I suppose. Uh, you've got Jarzinho, outstanding, outstanding forward player, largely a winger, could play through the middle, but 1v1 player, unbelievable. Uh, Gerson, great, great midfielder, could do absolutely everything. He was in my, I think, in one of my top 10 lists, wasn't he? Um, you've still got Pele, you've got Tostow, who's one of the most intelligent playmakers of all time. You've got Roberto Revelino, one of the most exciting left wingers of all time. Just a 1v1 nightmare for absolutely anybody. Brazil have three World Cups now. Uruguay have two. Italy have two. And there's a few of us then with one. But Brazil have established themselves as the prominent team in international football, the preeminent team in international football. And then the drought started. So in 1974, they go to the World Cup. They are placed in Group 2 with Yugoslavia, Scotland, and Zaire. They draw with Yugoslavia. They beat Zaire 9-0. No, sorry, they don't. What am I looking at? They beat, they draw, uh, they draw with Yugoslavia. They draw with Scotland, and then they beat Zaire 3-0. Yugoslavia had beaten them 9-0. They beat them 3-0, Jarzinho, Revelino and Valdemiro scoring the goals. That puts them through into the second round. In the second round, again, there's groups. Top team advances to the final. Second team goes into the third and fourth place playoff. Brazil are in with the Netherlands, East Germany, and Argentina. The other group is West Germany, Poland, Sweden, and Yugoslavia, who'd been so dominant in Brazil's group. Um, and Yugoslavia end up finishing bottom while the West Germans top Group B. In Group A, the Netherlands finish out on top. They beat Argentina 4-0, while Brazil beat East Germany 1-0. They beat East Germany 2-0, while Brazil beat Argentina 2-1. And then in the final game, to decide the spot in the finals, the Netherlands 2, Niskins and Cruyff with the goals and Brazil nil, Brazil go out. But they do advance to the third and fourth place playoff where they lose to Poland in 
what was still a big shock because, you know, Poland were pretty good back then, but Brazil were Brazil and they were expected to win. Um, West Germany would obviously go on and win that World Cup, beating the Dutch 2-1 in the final. In 1978, the World Cup took place in Argentina. Uh, Once again, Brazil were there because Brazil are always there. In Group 3, they drew 1-1 with Sweden. They drew 0-0 with Spain, and then they beat Austria 1-0. But Austria still topped the group. Both sides advance. Again, it's the same format where there's two groups one team from each group goes to the final one goes to the third and fourth place playoff this time they're in with argentina poland and peru they beat peru 3-0 they draw 0-0 with argentina they beat peru sorry they beat poland 3-1 but argentina beat peru 6-0 and argentina go to the final while Brazil go to the third and fourth place playoff. This time they go one better. They do beat Italy to finish third, which is, you know, and it's an improvement on fourth from the previous World Cup. But Argentina are victorious in the final, beating the Netherlands without Johan Cruyff, uh, 3-1 after extra time to claim Argentina's first World Cup. 1982 then, this is the team that so many people talk about. This is the team that, people believe should have won the World Cup because the talent was outrageous. So group stage, they're in group six with the Soviet Union, Scotland and New Zealand. They beat Soviet Union 2-1. They beat Scotland 4-1 and then they beat New Zealand 4-0. So they advanced without any real scares or concerns they go into the second group and they're in with Italy and Argentina so the hosts and the holders and when you look at some of the other groups I mean Poland Soviet Union and Belgium all good teams at the time but not at the same level as this you know France are in with Austria and Northern Ireland with respect that's a much much easier group than this one Brazil play two games, they beat Argentina 3-1, but they lose 3-2 to Italy, the famous Rossi hat-trick, and out go Brazil. And obviously Italy go on and win the World Cup that year. Look at that squad. It is absolutely littered with greats. You've got Toninho, one of the great defensive midfielders. You've got Junior, one of the best left-backs the game's ever seen. Leandro, don't know much about him. Oscar, another legendary Brazilian defender. You've got Socrates in midfield. Socrates. I, so, it is Socrates. I don't know why I keep saying Socrates. I think it's because that Greek fella. It's Socrates. Socrates in midfield. I mean, I talked about him yesterday. Unbelievable. Zico one of the great Brazilian players. Like when people talk about the Mount Rushmore of Brazilian players, he is brought up in that conversation. He's a, at worst a top five Brazilian player of all time. You've got the great Falcao, another incredible defensive midfielder. Him and Toninho in midfield was almost unfair to other teams. You just couldn't break them down. 
you've got Adinho, you've got Renato. That is a hell of a squad. The the headline names are Zico, Socrates, and Falcao. They're the headline names. They, I would argue, probably all go into an all-time Brazilian eleven. You could maybe argue about Socrates, but certainly Zico, certainly Falcao, they're both in the all-time Brazilian eleven. And that team played just stunning football. Absolutely stunning football that to this day is rarely replicated. You know, people talk about, you know, the, the attractive nature of City or Arsenal or whoever, and they're not a patch on, on what Brazil were in 82. In 1986, uh, once again, of course, Brazil at the World Cup, they're in Group D. They're drawn with Spain, Northern Ireland and Algeria. They beat Spain 1-0. They beat Northern, they beat Algeria 1-0, and then they beat Northern Ireland 3-1. Kareka is the star man. And most people will remember Kareka from his club career when he played for Napoli with Maradona and was, I mean, it was stupidly good. Was stupidly good. That Napoli team obviously is the most successful Napoli team ever, largely because of Maradona. But this is the guy who is the primary source of goals. Uh, into the knockout stage, then they take on Poland. They beat them 4 0. Then in the quarterfinals, they take on France. Game ends 1 1. They go to penalties and unfortunately lose 4 3. And out they go. In 1990, I still vividly remember uh, their knockout game against Argentina but to get to that knockout game they'd been drawn in Group C they beat Sweden 2-1 they beat Costa Rica 1-0 and then they beat Scotland 1-0 topped their group and bizarrely because Argentina had such a horrible group stage losing to Cameroon and then drawing with Romania finishing third Brazil end up facing Argentina in the knockouts a game we weren't expecting to have until later in the tournament it was a vicious, violent game where teams kicked each other up in the air, where Argentina defended for their lives. And it was just, it was ugly, but it was beautiful in how ugly it was. It was a proper battle between the, the greatest of rivals and Argentina would win with a goal from Claudio Canizia in the 81st minute. Then we move on to 94. And for people like me, this is the first time you saw Brazil win a World Cup in your lifetime. So they're drawn in Group B. They get Sweden, they get Russia, they get Cameroon. They beat Russia 2-0, Romario and Rai. Rai starts the tournament as captain, would lose his place during the tournament. Then they beat Cameroon 3-0, Romario, Marcio Santos, and Bebeto. And then they draw 1-1 with Sweden, Romario scoring again. Into the knockout stage, and it's the United States, the hosts. They've put on an amazing World Cup. Bebeto scores the only goal of the game. believe that is the famous rocking cradle celebration, is it not? Um, 
Then they play the Netherlands in one of the all-time great World Cup games. Brazil go one up through Romario. Bebeto makes it 2-0. Dennis Burkamp pulls one back. Aaron Vinter pulls another back. It's 2-2. 15 minutes left. Branco scores with about seven or eight minutes left at the Cotton Bowl in, Te- in Dallas. And Brazil advance when it looked like the game had gotten away from them. Netherlands had gotten back in. They had a really strong team as well. And they were piling on the pressure. And Brazil just withstood it, went back down the field and scored. In the semi-final, they beat Sweden 1-0. Romario scoring in the 80th minute. And that set up the final that everybody wanted, which was Brazil against Italy. He was the two best players in the world at the time. Roberto Baggio, who had been absolutely incredible in this competition, and Romario. And as with all games like this, where you're expecting a fantastic game, it ends nil-nil. And it goes to extra time, and it's still nil-nil, and then it goes to penalties. And then obviously the penalty shootout has become infamous. And everybody remembers Roberto Baggio skying his penalty. But what's forgotten is he was one of three Italians to miss. Baresi missed and Massaro missed. Albertini and Avani scored. Marcio Santos had missed for Brazil. Both sides missed their first penalty. Romario Branca and Dunga scoring for the Brazilians. Brazil win 3-2 and take home World Cup number four. But look at this squad. This is incredible how talented this squad is. If I can find this squad now, I have things open. I closed them. There we go. Claudio Taffarel, legendary figure. Jorginho, not, not the one that plays for Chelsea, obviously. Just a rock-solid right-back, talent on the ball, endless energy, tremendous player. Ricardo Roca, excellent defender. Maro Silva, one of my favourite midfielders of that era. Just a bustly box-to-box destroyer. Um, Not quite as powerful as SEN, but SEN-esque. And probably a little bit of a better passer as well. Branco, who was probably 5'10 tall, about 5'10 wide, built like a tank. And many years before Roberto Carlos made it cool, had an absolute sledgehammer of a left foot. Bebeto, one of the great strikers of the 90s, the perfect foil for Romario, his movement, his one-touch passing ability. That pairing was everything that was right about football. Like, five years later, we would see York and Cole at United, and much was made of their movement and their patterns of interplay. But these two in 94 were, were even better. And now individually, they were better players as well, but they just had such intelligence, such a telepathic understanding of what the other was going to do. Then you've got Dunga, one of the great defensive midfielders the game has seen, tough as nails, excellent on the ball, strong in the challenge, great positionally. You've got Zinho, who's historically become... Very, very underrated, uh, but was vital in that team. Rai, like I mentioned, started the tournament as captain, lost his place, 
and Dunga took the armband. And to be fair to Dunga, he he ran with it. Now, once once he got it, he wasn't giving it back. Romario, uh, we'll we'll get to him. Aldair, we'll get to him. Cafu, obviously, would go on and have a great career. At that point, he's not really established himself yet as you know as anything as much of anything. Um, he was brought on in that final. He was very much the second choice. But when Jorginho got injured early in the final, uh, he came on and, to his credit, had a really really strong game. Uh, Marcio Santos, very, very underrated defender. It's tremendous next to Aldair. Leonardo, unfortunately, his World Cup is best remembered for throwing an elbow. But he was a really good left back who could also play in midfield and later would become much more of a midfielder, obviously. Mazzino, who, I mean, as a player, I don't remember much about him. I remember him at Celta Vigo in the, the kind of late 90s when he was probably a little bit past his best. I suppose what he's best known for he's, is he's Thiago Alcantara and Rafinha's father. That's probably what he's best best known for. Um, but, you know, he was a very important player in this World Cup. And what's funny about him is he was primarily a defensive midfielder or fullback um, both his sons are ludicrously talented, attacking, attack-minded players. Um, in this World Cup, he played as one of the advanced midfielders because he was there to press and harry defenders and not let them play out, and it worked brilliantly. Uh, Paolo Sergio, he'd obviously go on and have a have a good career. Uh, Muller, a very very young Ronaldo. R9 was in the squad, brought along for the experience. Carlos Alberto Pereira obviously was the manager. And like I said, Mar- Mario Zagallo was the coordinator and sort of the brains behind the whole thing. Um, Yeah, let's move on to the, sorry, <laughs> let's move on to the 1998 World Cup. Uh, where Brazil would almost go back-to-back. They would get to the final and lose. In the group stage, they took on Norway, Morocco, and Scotland. Beat Scotland 2-1 in a very tight game. Beat Morocco 3-0, and then lost 2-1 to Norway in a big upset. They were one up. Norway scored two late goals to upset them, but they still topped the group. Uh, Into the knockout stages then, they beat Chile 4-1. They beat the Danes 3-2. And then they beat the Netherlands 4-2 on penalties after a really good semi-final game to set up a final with France, who were the hosts, a final that is kind of infamous in many ways because of what happened with Ronaldo, the fish that he had and the fact that he was then allowed to play and he was just dreadful, absolutely dreadful uh, in that final. He, he'd look like he was completely out of it. Um, Brazil, you could argue, with a better team through the tournament, but at the same time, I think France were worthy winners. Brazil would win their fifth and to date final World Cup in 2002 in South Korea and Japan. 
In the group stage, they were placed in Group C. They beat Turkey 2-1, Ronaldo and Rivaldo. Rivaldo, who, of course, would do a very unfortunate thing of getting hit in the leg with the ball and clutching his face. They'd beat China 4-0, and then they beat Costa Rica 5-2. In the knockout stage, they beat Belgium 2-0. Then they beat England 2-1 with that famous Ronaldinho free kick that David Seaman misjudged. Oh, no, it was the semi-final. Was it the semi-final against Turkey when they played them the second time that Rivaldo did the silly thing? Oh, I think it might have been. They beat them 1-0. Ronaldo scored. I can't remember which Turkey game it was that he got hit in the leg with the ball and went down clutching his face. But either way, on to the final went Brazil. They faced Germany. They got a little bit of fortune when Michael Ballack was ruled out through suspension and they would win 2-0. Ballack had been unbelievable in that tournament. But without him, the Germans didn't really stand much of a chance. Uh, This World Cup was unique for a couple of ways. Brazil played a back three, which was quite against what their main footballing philosophy had been. Uh, But Scolari didn't care. He was there to win by whatever means were necessary. Um, You look at the squad that they had. You've got Cafu, obviously, at this point has established himself. Lucio, Roque Jr. and Edmilson playing in defence. Those three were absolutely rock solid together, but prior to the tournament, didn't have a whole lot of experience. They all came into the tournament with less than 20 caps to the name. Um, Roberto Carlos was well established as the most, though the best attacking left back in the world at that point. In midfield, Gilberto Silva, who would go on and make his name at Arsenal, in well, make his name in Europe at Arsenal. Uh, but was a great player in his homeland prior to that tournament. Ronaldo is fantastic, obviously, and he had bounced back from what had happened in 98 and then some serious injuries. Was never the player that he was pre-98 again, but was was still very, very good. Rivaldo was incredible. Ronaldinho would go on to be the best player in the world. About a year after this World Cup, he took that mantle. You had Dida, big, reliable Solid, but a backup for the Brazilian team at the time. Um, Giuliano Belletti, who famously scored for Barcelona in a Champions League final. Uh, Cleverson, who would move to Manchester United after the World Cup. Started the tournament kind of as an unknown outside of Brazil. He only had five caps. By the end of it, he was starting in midfield. Uh, Vampetta, if you don't remember him, he was a very, very talented, but Temperamental attacking midfielder played for Inter Milan and PSG. Uh, Janino Paliste, obviously, we remember Janino from his time at Middlesbrough. Danielson, one of the more frustrating players, I suppose, in history. Uh, Rogerio Senni, who, you know, the great goal scoring goalkeeper. And a very young Kaka, who was yet to move to Europe and he had two caps going into the tournament, but he has a World Cup winner's medal. And he doesn't care how he got it. Um, And that's the last time Brazil won a World Cup. Now, since then, they've obviously continued to be at every competition. Uh, In 2006, the 
competition took place, obviously, in Germany. This, to me, is the last great World Cup. I don't think we've had a great one. I think we've had a very good one since, but this was this was great. Um, Brazil were in Group F. They topped the group with nine points, wins over Croatia, Australia, and Japan. That put them through to the knockout stage, where they beat Ghana 3-0 before losing to France. France would go on to the final, where they would lose to the Italians. Uh, moving on then to 2010, World Cup famously took place in South Africa. This should have been a great World Cup, but the quality wasn't there. It felt like a procession from early on. It just felt inevitable that Spain were going to win. Uh, Brazil topped their group. They beat North Korea 2-1, or if you live in North Korea, you'll know that game is when you famously beat Brazil 6-0. Beat Ivory Coast 3-1 and then drew 0-0 with Portugal. In the knockout stage, Brazil beat Chile 3-0 and then lost to the Dutch 2-1 in an upset. And the Dutch obviously would go on to the final that year uh, and lose to the Spanish. In 2014, as far as Brazil were concerned, football came home. This, again, had everything set up for it to be great. This was a spectacle. It was a carnival. Stadiums were great. Football was dreadful. Football was terrible in 2014. Um, Some, I vividly remember one specific idiot telling me it was the best World Cup since 86. Um, utter nonsense. They did top their group. They topped Group A. They beat Croatia 3-1. They drew with Mexico, 0-0. And then they beat Cameroon, 4-1. In the group stage, they beat Chile on penalties after a fairly dull draw. Then they beat Colombia 2-1. Then they faced Germany in the semi-final. And that is one of the most embarrassing days in the history of Brazilian football. Germany 7, Brazil 1. Again, that's Germany 7, Brazil 1, in a World Cup semi-final in Brazil. How any of that team played for Brazil again, I have no idea. They were a disgrace. Um, They would play the third and fourth place playoff and they're comfortably beaten 3-0 by the Dutch, so they finished fourth in their own World Cup. In 2018, they were placed in Group E. They beat, sorry, they drew with Switzerland 1-1 in their first game. Then they beat Costa Rica 2-0 in their second game. They were dreadful in that game. Needed a, Coutinho and Neymar scored in injury time. It had been nil-nil to 90 minutes. Then they beat Serbia 2-0 and looked a bit more like themselves. Into the knockout stage, they beat Mexico 2-0 and then they lose 2-1 to Belgium. And another World Cup ends for them. And then obviously the most recent World Cup 2022, which was played in the wintertime in Qatar because, you know, money and corruption. They are placed in Group G. They beat Serbia 2-0. They beat Switzerland 1-0. And then they lose 1-0 to Brazil. They still top the group and still make their way through. They took on South Korea. They beat them 4-1. And you thought, okay, they start to look a bit more like themselves. And then they go out in penalties to Croatia and deny us all the Brazil-Argentina semifinal that everybody wanted to see. 
And that's that. Uh, in the Copa America, they finished third in 1916, third in 1917. That might sound impressive. There was only four teams. They won it in 1919, third again in 1920, second in 21, third in 1922. They won the two that were in Brazil and didn't win anywhere else. Uh, finished fourth in 23, runners up in 25. Runners up in 37, they didn't take part in the ones in between. Uh, didn't take part in 39 or 41, finished third and 42. Runners up in 55 and 56, didn't take part in 50, in sorry, 45 and 46, didn't take part in 47, won it on home soil again in 1949, then didn't win it again until it was once again hosted by Brazil in 1989. So, we are 73 years into the Copa America. There has been one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 20, 25, 30. There's been 34 editions of it. They've won four. And they've only won the four that were played in Brazil. They did win it for the first time on foreign soil in 1997. It was held in Bolivia and Brazil would win it. They would win it again in 99. They would fail to win it in 01, but they won it again in 04 and then in 07. So they won four out of five to boost their, their tally of wins from four to eight. And then they won it again in 2019, again on home soil. Um, they've obviously got a great record in the competition with nine wins. I mean, that's very, very impressive. Um, but at the same time, you look at the fact that Argentina have won it 15 times and Uruguay have won it 15 times. And it does just kind of dull the idea that Brazil have always been the dominant factor in South American football. And you know what else dulls a notion about Brazil? We think of Brazil and we think of this lovely free-flowing Jogo Benito football. But the last two World Cups, they won it by being defensive. In 94, they had that great front two. But then they played a box midfield with Mazzinho and Zinho ahead of Dunga and Marcio Santos. No, Maro Silva. <laughs> and then Santos, Aldair, Jorginho and Branca as a back four. That's a four box two, but it's a defensive one. It's set up to press and counterattack. It's designed largely off Saki's Milan team. Then you look at the ninety, or the 2002 team. Yes, you have that unbelievable front three, and both wing-backs were great going forward, but go back and watch that team play. They soaked up a lot of pressure. They invited you to attack that back three with two men sat in front of it. The other interesting thing that connects 04, uh, 94 and 02 is that 
Rai, as I said, was the captain going into 94, lost his place during the tournament. Emerson was the captain going into 02, got injured in one of the last training sessions before the World Cup, dislocated his shoulder and ended up missing the competition. Dunga and Cafu are World Cup winning captains. Neither of them should have been Brazil captain at those tournaments. That was not the plan for either of them. So while, yes, Brazil continued to give us amazing footballers, the last two World Cups Brazil have won, they've done it by being rock-solid defensively, rock-solid in midfield, and then allowing the attackers to have freedom to play and express themselves off of that. Yes, you always will have attacking Brazilian fullbacks, but it's the central spine, the three centre-backs and the two holding midfielders in... 2 the two centre-backs, the two holding midfielders, and then the two in front of them in 94. So people will tell you that, you know, Brazil, it's all about this purity of football and playing off the cuff and inventiveness. Well, it's not, and it never was. They were always rock-solid defensively. And they were gnarly and they were dirty when they needed to be. And then they would sprinkle the creativity, the genius at one end of the field. Because the other end was taken care of. So to look at, for myself, my kind of favourite Brazilian players of all time. I mean... You're hard pushed to beat Ronaldo as a nine in in the history of the game. I remember watching him play for PSV in like a UEFA Cup game or whatever it was and just being in awe. And then at the time, you didn't know a whole lot about who the players were. You were relying on magazines or whatever that you might read. So World Soccer and 4-4-2 were sort of the big ones at the time. And I know they still are, but at, at the time they were kind of your, especially world soccer, it was your main source of all news from and all information of, you know, the other leagues, South America, whatever. And I remember reading about Bobby Robson going to Barcelona and then signing this fella. And I was like, oh, that's that guy I saw. He does look really, really good. And the previous Brazilian I'd seen play for PSV was Romario, who'd gone to Barca. I was like, well, if he's half as good as him, he's going to be great. And he turned out to be just a better player. Now, he didn't didn't obviously get to fulfil the potential he had because of the injuries and whatever else, but just a phenomenal player. That one season at Barcelona is, is still one of the great seasons anyone's ever had. Goes to Inter, tears up Serie A, and then his knee explodes, and then his career is altered. But he would still score goals for fun. Obviously, had some some time of of success at Real Madrid. Went back and played for AC Milan. Then finished up with Corinthians when he no longer really cared about football, but could still embarrass defenders left, right, and center. Ninety eight caps for Brazil and sixty two goals. Um, Romario is is another that I just, he's one of those players that it's just fun to watch play. 
And even now, watching him play uh, the clips you see of him playing five aside and stuff, like he still plays the game with just this natural joy and this genius. And his movement, his pace over short distances, his finishing ability. If if he came along today, he's a hundred million pound player. At at eighteen, nineteen, he's that talented. Um, obviously at Vasco, at PSV, and at Barca, he was unstoppable. Same even when he went back to Flamengo. It was weird when he left Barcelona after only two years to go back to Flamengo, while he was still only twenty nine. But his goal scoring record in that time was ferocious. And like it continued to be, comes back to Europe with Valencia, it doesn't go great, goes back to Flamengo, scores for fun, goes to Vasco da Gama, scores for fun. We remember him as a player that, you know, played in Europe, but like he was in Europe for seven, well, eight seasons. One with Valencia that nobody really remembers. He was near Barcelona for two years. He was with PSV for five. Now, he did have a bad knee injury when he was at PSV. But he was there five years. Can you imagine now if PSV Eindhoven bought, let's say, Endrick, who kind of, I think, is the closest thing to Romario. Not not quite got the subtlety of Romario, but the same type of exuberance, the same type of build as well in a lot of ways. But imagine if Endrick was bought by PSV and then spent five years there. People would just write him off and say, oh, well, he's not good enough playing a top league. The game is just different now. But even at Barcelona, like he has that amazing first season. He scores 32 and 47. And then he folds out with everybody in that second season. And he's away off home. So strange. So, so strange. He's basically there a year and a half at Barcelona. Mad. Aldeir, I mentioned earlier, I've talked about him endlessly on this podcast. I just, he's one of the best centre backs to ever live. Flawless defensively, strong, quick. Un- incredible 1v1 think Martin Keown and then think like 30% better at everything and you'd have something akin to Aldair uh, I mentioned Falcao earlier on and you know when we talk defensive midfielders that's very, very much my wheelhouse um, he, he was just he, he could do everything he would just dominate games similar to what Roy Keane did and I think that's why I like him so much he could just do absolutely everything. But he was. He wasn't as physical as Keane. He's a bit more. I mean, if he came along now, I think he'd probably play next to a ball winner, more like an Alonso type of role. But he was. You know, he was tena- more tenacious, more dogged than Alonso. More, had more growl in him than Alonso. But I, I do think if he came along now, 
he'd probably be more Alonso than Keane. I'm talking late Keane, not not early box to box Keane, but that late era Keane who could just control a game, do a bit of everything, but didn't have to overexert himself. Falcao didn't have to exert himself from when he was twenty. He just had that ability to just dictate games. Great passer, great shooting, could dribble, could organize, could lead a team, could go and win you the ball back, could do a bit of everything. One of the greatest players that Roma have ever had, and for me, one of the best Brazilians of all time, even with only winning 36 caps. That's just more down to managerial stupidity than anything else. Um, We'll do one more. We'll do Dunga. And again, it's it's this position that I love. And again, Dunga, a lesser version of Falcao, but a very underrated player late in his career, like uh, post-career. Um, he's just often overlooked and people talk about great defensive midfielders and great captains. He's a tremendous leader of a team. And when he was given the armband for Brazil, it didn't change anything about what he was doing. He'd already been the vocal leader, the organizer, the one that was lifting others up and making sure everybody was doing what they were meant to be doing. He didn't have a sparkling club career by any stretch. A bit of a journeyman career, if anything. Uh, Four years of international, but never really made an impact there. Left at 21, went to Corinthians for a year, didn't really do too well. Went to Santos, struggled there, went to Vasco da Gama. And everybody knew he had the talent, but he wasn't really able to produce it as regularly as people expected. And then he went to to Pisa in Italy and was great for them. Earned a move to Fiorentina, spent four years there. Then he joined Pescara, left after a year and went to Stuttgart, which is where he was when he won the World Cup. And then he went to play in Japan for a couple of years. And then he finished off with International. Um, he didn't really he didn't really have the playing career that you would expect, but he was he should have had a much better career. But I still think as a player, he was outstanding at what he did. I think his time at Fiorentina and at Stuttgart, I think he, he really did show what he was capable of even though he wasn't always playing with the best of teammates. But, you know, for the national team, you look at his his career, he won 91 caps, four caps in 87, because he was a prospect and he was really highly regarded. Then he doesn't win a cap in 88. Then he wins 15 in 89. Then he wins six in 90. Then he doesn't get capped again for two full years. In 93, he works his way back in. It's 13, 13, and 14 over the next three years. And then he's out of the national team because he moves to Japan and then they have to bring him back in and he wins 17 caps in 97 and nine and 98 because they couldn't function without him. He's just one of those that knits things together and makes other things make sense and lifts other players and connects other players. Great player. Great player. We'll leave that there. We will be back after this break. Uh, we will have a look quickly at last night's games, a look at tonight's games, 
and we have news in the Premier League. So I will see you after this. Right, welcome back. So Nottingham Forest have announced Nuno Espirito Santo as their new manager on a two and a half year contract to replace the fired Steve Cooper. Uh, Nuno was most recently sacked by Al Itahad in South uh, Saudi Arabia. Prior to that, he'd been sacked by Spurs. And prior to that, obviously, he was at Wolves. And he did well at Wolves, but he did run out of steam towards the end. He does play back three. It is a squad. He prefers to play back three. It is a squad built to play a back three. So I do think there should be some decent fit. Um, he will know Morgan Gibbs-White quite well. They were at Wolves together for a long time. So I, I will be interested to see. I just think it's it's quite the uninspiring appointment. Um, and we'll see how it goes. The FA have charged Brentford and Aston Villa for the behaviour of their teams and that little kerfuffle on the weekend. Abubakar Kamara was obviously sent off after a lot of messing, which was largely down to Neil Mopé just being Neil Mopé and Emmy Martinez being Emmy Martinez. And Danny Alves's trial has been set for February of 2024. The police are investigating an incident between a fan and Martin Dubravka after a fan confronted the goalkeeper during last night's game or after last night's game. Um, well, it was during, yeah, because it was just after the just after the Chelsea goal. Um, so that should be, you know, that should be a lifetime ban if that fan has run onto the pitch and, and pushed a goalkeeper. Uh, that should be the end of him going to games. Uh, in this cup last night, the EFL Cup, that is, we had three games. Everton won, Fulham won. Michael Keane scores an own goal. Beto gets Chelsea back, or gets Everton back into it. Game goes to penalties. And Fulham advance. Beto opens the scoring 1-0. Andreas Pereira makes it 1-1. McNeil makes it 2-1. Kearney makes it 2-2. Keane makes it 3-2. Paulinho makes it 3-3. Danjuma makes it 4-3. De Cordova-Reed misses. It's all on Amadou Onana. If he scores, Everton are through, and he takes the worst penalty I've ever seen in my life. And Carlos, actually, no, the second worst, Gary Lineker's penalty, which I think would have tied Bobby Robson's record, Bobby Charlton's England record. That's the worst. Um, Carlos Vinicius scores 4-4. Tarkovsky 5-4, Tete 5-5, Garner 6-5, Robinson 6-6, Idrisigan again misses, which he could tell he was going to miss before he even walked up to the ball. And Tosin at Darabayo puts Fulham through to the semi-finals. Port Vale nil, Middlesbrough 3, Johnny Housen, Morgan Rogers, and Matt Crooks. Fairly straightforward for Borough. And they have now reached the semi-final, having played every single game away from home, which is very, very impressive. And then lastly, Chelsea won, Newcastle won. Callum Wilson opened the scoring on 16 minutes. Chelsea dominated the game, but didn't look like they were going to score. Enter Kieran Trippier, who just couldn't be playing any worse at the moment if he tried. He gifts them a goal. Mikhail Mudrik is the beneficiary. 1-1, straight to penalties. Cole Palmer scores. Callum Wilson scores, Connor Gallagher scores, Kieran Trippier compounds things by missing, 
Nkunku scores, Gimerish scores, Mudrick scores, and Matt Ritchie misses. And Chelsea win 4-2 on penalties. So they are through. So Fulham, Borough, and Chelsea are three of our four semi-finalists in this year's EFL Cup. The final game is tonight, 8pm kickoff. Liverpool at home to West Ham. It'll be interesting to see what Liverpool do team-wise, considering at the weekend they host Arsenal. But they need to get themselves back in form because despite the fact they'd won the three games previous to the weekend's poor performance against United, they have performed very, very poorly in those four games. They have taken 10 points, so they'll be happy with that, but they won't be happy with the performances. And perhaps they go with a strong team tonight in the hope that that can spark them back into life. On to the gossip. Tottenham are looking at Genoa centre-back Radu Dragazin as a target. He's expected to cost £26 million should he move in the January transfer window. He's hugely talented. He was in the Juventus system for years, and then I don't know how Genoa got hold of him, but uh, he's been really good. Real Madrid are set to make a shock move for Mauro Icardi. Might make sense as a short-term number nine. Borussia Dortmund are on... Sorry, are interested in Sergio Regulon, who's on loan at Manchester United. Regulon has a clause to end his loan in his contract should a permanent move come up. Brentford have warned Chelsea and Arsenal that they'll have to pay a decent fee if they want to sign Ivan Tony. Now, I saw, I heard that interview, and when he said decent fee, he was talking 70, 80 million. Tottenham, Aston Villa and Brighton have made contact with Juventus about English winger Samuel Illing Jr., but no offers have been made as yet. RB Leipzig are interested in signing Jadon Sancho, but will not match Manchester United's wages for the player. So United would end up having to pay a lot of money. While Sancho could leave, United are not expecting to make any major signings in January. John Murtaugh has told fans. Joe Polina is no longer a target for Liverpool. Other top clubs want him, but Bayern consider him too expensive. That's just a negotiation tactic. Newcastle have opened talks with Lewis Miley over a new long-term contract to be signed when he turns 18 later this season. And rightly so. He is he is outstanding. He's going to be a, a big player. Uh, Preston are interested in signing Dan Gore on loan from Manchester United for the rest of the season. Edu has decided to block advances for Jakob Kivor in January. Makes sense. They do need him. Um, he can be a valuable squad player. Copenhagen are ready to sell 18-year-old Swedish winger Rooney Bardgi, uh, who is a target for Chelsea, Manchester United, and Tom. Makes sense if they can get a big price off him having a really strong Champions League group stage. You know, sell while the going is good. Don't wait for the possibility that he has a, you know, a downturn as many young players do, and maybe that price drops a little bit, maximise what you can get, and uh, you end up happier, I think, especially if you're a club like Copenhagen, who'll reinvest it very, very well. Right, folks, that is me. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.